Shalom and welcome. We are in lesson 17 of this in-depth Torah study, an in-depth Torah study for Christians. And remember, Torah is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This Torah study is called The Gospel According to Moses. This is Reverend John Ferret. And here in Lesson 17, we're now going to consider that question, who are the Nephilim? In Genesis 6, we start reading, Now it came about when the men began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. Now we already actually took care of a alternative view of who are B'nai Elohim, the sons of God or the sons of the gods, in Lesson 16. And again, we took a look at a view that really makes sense. Well, these B'nai Elohim, they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Then we get to verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So we're going to again put the Bible back into its historical context and try to determine different ideas of who the Nephilim were. I have many Christian friends and Christian associates who, when they come up to this word Nephilim, have a certain particular view, and they said, well, we get this from the rabbis. Now, it's really interesting. If you study what the rabbis say about who the Nephilim are, we find some very interesting views. One is from Rashi. He is a great rabbi of Orthodox Judaism from the Middle Ages, from 1040 to 1105 A.D. His nickname is Rashi. His name actually is Rabbi Shlomo Yitzaki. Now his view is that these are fallen ones. And his view is that this word Nephilim must come from the verb nafal, to fall. However, there is no uh, etymological evidence that Nephilim is connected to that verb. But from Rashi's view, it is. And he said that the Nephilim were the ones that were fallen because of their evil, and they caused others to fall. Now, that's his view. However, there was another rabbi, a contemporary of Rashi, and his name is Ibn Ezra. Actually, his full name is Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra. And he disagreed. Totally, at living at the same time with Rashi. He said that the Nephilim were those who caused others, when they saw the Nephilim, their hearts would fall because they were fearful and hopeless at looking at these giants. So Abraham Ibn Ezra basically said these were giants. These were men of renown. And they caused somebody who saw them their hearts to fall. Well, which is it? Are they the fallen ones, the Nephilim? Or do they call, cause the hearts of others to fall because they uh, see these giants, these 
these men that could not be conquered. But there's a third view in the Jewish mystical writings called the Zohar and also in early Targums, which are Aramaic Bible translations in the late first century, they have another view. And their view is that they're fallen angels. So what we have is, are they fallen angels? Are they giants? Uh, are they men who have fallen? Are they evil men who have fallen because of their sin? So we get a lot of different views and we get many Christians who focus just in on one view. And they, I, I've had Christian friends say to me, oh no, they are fallen angels. Which is very interesting that when you go into rabbinic Judaism and you study the rabbis and you study Jewish writing, we have at least three different views of who they are. But the only thing they have in common is this reliance on the word or the verb nafal to fall. So we are going to consider another view. We're going to put the Bible into its historical context. I want to see, is there something here that makes sense to us? Something here that, where it agrees with the Bible. For instance, if they're fallen angels, angels don't procreate or get married. So people who say that these are fallen angels, how is it? Because the Bible shows over and over and over again that the angels don't get married. They don't have children. So one of the things that we're going to rely on is we're going to let the Bible translate the Bible. We're going to see how Nephilim fits into many other verses to give us a common sense alternative. So ready? Ready to go into Lesson 17 to see who the Nephilim are? Come. Let's go. So this, this was amazing to me. Uh, it was amazing to me from, because I disagree many times with the Orthodox rabbis uh, in terms of their uh, sometimes interesting notions of what things mean uh, in the Torah. But you guys, again, we see that they're probably right on. If you remember, I asked, you know, what, what did they have in there for... Um, uh, what it said, the sons of God, and, and Rachel here had the Chumash, and she said the sons of rulers. So when I go in the Chumash, they're saying it could be rulers. Now let me read you the commentary. The sons of rulers, these were the sons of princes and judges. For Elohim always implies rulership. Thus the Torah begins the narrative of the tragedy by speaking, now listen to this, here's the sin, of the subjugation of the weak by the powerful. Fascinating. In the IVP Torah commentary, or not Old Testament commentary, this is the Inner Varsity Press Bible background commentary. It's a Christian book written by Walton, Matthews, and Chevalis. Excellent, excellent um, historical perspective on the Torah. Here's what they write about the sons of God. More than likely, these are 
uh, the uh, this, these are for the Israelites individuality for kings. In the ancient Near East, kings were commonly understood as having a filial relationship to a deity and were often considered to have been engendered by the deity, like Pharaoh. It is more likely that this is a reference to the... Oh, and then what happens with these kings? What do they do? It goes to the daughters of, uh, daughters of men and they take them. Now, Fox has a very interesting way of putting it because he says um, about the women, let's see. Um, yeah, and it says they took themselves wives whomever they chose. The Hebrew there is to take as if to take a wife. And I mean to take them as their possession, okay, as a wife. So, now listen to this. It is more likely that this taking of a wife is in reference to the rite of the wedding night. This is cited as one of the oppressive practices of the kings, and listen to this, into the Gilgamesh epic. The Gilgamesh epic, ladies and gentlemen, is one of the epics that has the flood story. But also in here, the Gilgamesh epic, and I've read and I was looking for a quote right from the Gilgamesh epic about this, but the normal men were really upset with the king. How dare you take our wives, especially on the first night when we got married to them? The king could exercise this right as representative of the gods to spend the wedding night with any woman who was being given in marriage. This presumably was construed as a fertility rite. If this is the practice referred to here, it would offer an explanation for the nature of the offense. In other words, the kings could do anything they wanted to. Okay? They were the law, not civil law whatsoever. Now this makes sense. Do you remember Abraham and Sarah? He was called Avram. She was called Sarai. And they go to Egypt because there was a drought, okay, in Canaan. They go to Egypt, and what does he say in Genesis 12? This is Genesis 12, 10 through 15. He basically says, tell them you're my sister. Don't tell them I'm your husband. Because if they take you, they won't kill me if they think I'm your brother. But if they think I'm your husband... Pharaoh will overrule the law or the legal binding of our marriage so he could have you because you are a very beautiful woman. And when you actually take a look at that, you actually, it actually says that indeed they took Sarah, Sari, all right, and took her to Pharaoh's house for Pharaoh, the son of Amun-Ra, the son of one of the gods from a Hebrew perspective. It repeats itself. There's a king called Abimelech. Okay, in, in Hebrew it's Abimelech, my father the king. It's probably more of a title, not a name. Okay, and Abimelech, the father the king, he again, okay, got into the, uh, Abraham, he got in the same situation with Sarah. Don't tell Abimelech that you're my wife. Okay, just say you're my sister because he will kill me. Same thing happened. Then with Isaac and Rebekah. And you have the same name, Abimelech, and it happens later. It doesn't have to be the same king because Abimelech might be, might, we underline that, might not be a name as it could be a title, okay, of a Philistine king. 
Then you remember Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, same thing. Abimelech. And you remember that the king wanted Rebekah. And he happened to be standing by the window, and he saw Isaac and uh, Rebekah kind of uh, really getting into it out in the backyard. And the king says, what is going on here? So he comes to Isaac. He says, what are you doing with her? I, is that your wife? Okay. And that's how the story ends when Abimelech finds out that they were, you know, they were husband and wife. Do you remember the prince of Shechem? He took Dinah, the only daughter of Jacob, and raped her. Okay? This is the possibilities of that ancient culture that they could do anything they, they wanted to. Let me mention something, this right here, and, that's, and it's this. When we take a look at this concept, what are these men doing? They're saying they're the sons of a god, therefore they are God. Pharaoh is God, he's God on earth, okay? And isn't it interesting that they are not only are saying they're a son of God, but they are God, going against much of what God has already said in the Torah. This, this, this is a total rejection of the God of heaven. Now, History seems to provide some real possibilities here for Genesis 6, 1 through 4. It provides a real possibility. You guys, what I like about this is the more and more and more I teach Bible history, the more and more I approach God's wonderful, amazing book using archaeology, history, geography, customs, culture, and the language of the Middle East, not English even in the Egyptian and the Greek and the Roman, to take a look at those languages, even Latin. What I begin to see is I begin to see a book that makes sense. It really makes sense. It's not talking about crazy ideas of these fallen angels who have come down and to have sex with uh, girls. That is an opinion. There's nothing in the Bible that says that. And pretty soon we get into history, and this begins to make a lot more and more common sense. Now, one thing I wanted to bring up is this. In Egypt, I'm not going to give you the verses right now, but I want to show you something that's important. In Egypt, God said to the Hebrews, listen, you know, I'm, going to, I'm doing all of this stuff here in Egypt, all these plagues and everything, because I want you to know me. And the word there is yada. And yada doesn't mean no, all right? I know that my coffee cup is right here. It doesn't have any effect on me whatsoever. But again, yada is that word that's a deep, intimate knowing. My wife and I have yada. You would all agree. There's a deep, intimate knowing between Robin and I. I mean, she could tell you stories about me that, you know, will curl your hair, all right? Now, Gary and I have yada. A couple of years ago, we would say no. I saw him the first time in class here, we met, but over the years, we're getting to know each other better, okay? Bruce and Rachel, very close friends. We've gotten to know each other. I mean, there's stuff that we know about each other that not many people in this room. It's yada, okay? God wants yada with the Hebrews. He wants a deep relationship with them, okay? Not just a religion. He wants relationship. And then God says this, I want yada with the Egyptians. 
What? The Egyptians, they were taking Hebrew boys and drowning them. And God says, no, I want to have Yada with them. And then what is most amazing, again, in Exodus, and we'll get there, he wants Yada with Pharaoh. He wants a deep relationship with Pharaoh. Amazing. But we get to some key verses. Who's God met at in Egypt? The gods. I've come to destroy the gods of Egypt. That's who he's angry at. Not the Egyptians, not Pharaoh. Now listen to Deuteronomy 11, 16. This is part of the Shema. In Deuteronomy 11, starting in verse 16, God is warning you about false gods, big time. Listen. Take you care, lest your heart be seduced, so that you turn aside and serve other gods and prostrate yourselves to them. And the anger of Yahweh flare up against you, so that he shuts up the heavens, there is no rain, and the earth does not give forth its yield. And you perish quickly from off the good land that Yahweh is giving you. God is saying, you go to other gods, you do this at risk. You will perish. Now that could mean he'll just take them out of the land. But I think it means probably a lot more than that. So you guys, when I look at this, it seems to me that from a historical approach, we get a realistic, now hang, hang on to my words now, because these are important, a realistic possibility of what the sons of God really mean. Especially if we look upon it from the Hebrews' perspective 3,500 years ago and the ancient Near East culture. And once we studied the ancient Near East culture, it begins to make sense. However, we've got another issue. Who are the Nephilim? Oh my, do this on the internet sometime, on their Google. Type in the question, who are the Nephilim? Boy, will you get some wonderful internet sites. Remember, I actually use books. Real books, look at this. He's got pages and I don't think many young people understand what these are. Books, real ones. Who are these guys? Now, when you actually take the word Nephilim, Hebrew scholars will tell you, both Jew and, Jew and non and Gentile, that the etymology of the word, okay, in other words, where did the word come from, is very difficult and very uncertain. It only appears a few times in the Bible. And again, scholars are saying Nephilim makes sense to them, not to us. However, there are very interesting different uh, teachings as to who the Nephilim are, with no basis, in fact. None whatsoever. I just love that. If you actually study some of these things that are on the internet uh, and other stuff, uh, there's no basis in fact. It's just somebody's opinion. It's very interesting. Now, it has an obscure meaning. Some of the rabbis say it means the fallen ones. Well, it might. Okay, but it just says fallen. In the Gesenius lexicon, it can mean fallen. But fallen what? Okay, because the other meaning here is big guys. These are big guys, giants, okay? 
One aspect is, in the Hebrew, could it mean that these guys are so big, okay, that they fall upon the weak? That they fall upon the weak. Oh, that means that they're evil, okay? But fallen does not necessarily have to mean fallen angels or fallen spiritual creatures. Nephilim, okay? So in terms of um, angels, probably no. Let me go to the... IVP Bible background book again. And take a look at Nephilim. So from the InterVarsity Press um, Bible background, here's Nephilim, again from a historical perspective and from a scholarly perspective. Nephilim is not an ethnic designation. It's not describing a certain type of ethnicity of people, like Polish people or Hebrews or whatever, okay? It's probably a description of a particular type of individual, okay? I did this this morning when I was talking to somebody about this class tonight, and I said, this is what you mean. Plumbers, okay? Do you know some plumbers? You probably say, yeah, I know plumbers, okay? Plumbers is what Nephilim is like. It's just describing a particular type of individual, in Numbers 13.33, they are identified. Now let me say that again to you. In Numbers 13.33, they are identified. The Torah tells you who they are. Period. They are the descendants of Anach, as some of the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. Now the latter are described as giants, but there's no reason to consider the Nephilim to be giants. We don't know how the conceptual word is used here, okay? It is more likely that the term describes heroic warriors. In other words, they got a big name. Perhaps the ancient equivalent of the knights errant as a possibility. Now that's an opinion, very good opinion based upon history. Let me give you an example, Goliath. He's a big dude, okay? And he was well known. He's one of the plumbers. You could use the word Nephilim for Goliath. Is he a Nephilim? He's, a, he's like a plumber. That's it. That's all it means. Okay? He's not a descendant of Anach. What does the Torah say? The Nephilim are in Genesis 6-4, yes? And in Numbers 13-33, God says in his Torah that they're men. What did God do in the flood? He destroyed them all. They can't be spiritual beings. They're gone. Okay? Numbers 13.33 says they appear again. Well, if you have plumbers that are needed before the flood, you probably need plumbers after the flood. If you have people that built boats before the flood, you probably will need people to build boats after the flood so they can go fishing. Boat builders, okay? If you had Nephilim, guys that were, whoa, had a real reputation, and maybe they were big, okay, you may have that again. We have the king, Anak, I think, what was his, his bed size? It was like nine feet long or something. So again, what we have in the Torah is they're simply men. Now, th this, here's, here's my frustration. I'm trying to, as we teach this class, is to approach God's word with intellectual honesty. I want to see what does it say, not what you think Okay, 
not what the rabbis think, not what other scholars think. What does this say? And once we understand it, maybe we need to go to scholars. Maybe we need to go to the rabbis to say, man, how do they struggle with this? So as we do this, we ask ourselves the question, to be intellectually honest, what does the Torah say? What is God saying as he inspires the pen of Moses? What's the, and again, like I said, we're trying to be intellectually honest. What happens to us, I've done this. The Torah says X, but I say Y. That happens over and over and over again. You could just listen to this in so many different types of teachings, whether you're on the internet or anyplace else. The Torah says X, but men say Y. Why do we do that? We go against exactly what the Torah says. I don't understand it. But one of the things that I do know is that all of us, you guys, we're we are totally disconnected from the ancient Near Eastern culture. Totally. On top of that, we read the Bible in English. English, and we say shalom means peace. Ah, it drives me crazy. Shalom doesn't mean peace. Is peace part of shalom? Yes, it's bigger than that. And on top of that, every one of us in this room is clouded by tradition. I grew up as a Catholic. I have Catholic tradition. I was in the Messianic movement. I have Messianic tradition. I've got so much tradition, it's coming out of my ears. Okay? And what I need to do is to be intellectually honest and say, okay, that's tradition. Put it up there. Leave it sit there. I'm not trying to say all tradition is bad. But I put it up there and I say, there it is. Okay? Does that agree? Am I learning anything different? Now that I've been to Egypt, now that I understand one statement by one scholar to understand the Torah, okay, to understand the Torah in its fullness, you need to understand Egypt. Because who came out of Egypt? Moses and the Hebrews. And who was the first kids on the block to have the Torah? Them. So it had to make sense to them. Okay, and God is trying to teach them as they come out of Egypt. I remember one scholar in a class that Robin and I were taking, he basically said with a great deal of intensity to the people in his class, Bring your brain to the Bible. Bring your think and understand what tradition is and what understand what things in the past that you've learned that probably may be wrong. They may be right, but be to intellectually honest as we approach God's word. Genesis 6, 5 through 9. Let's read that again. And Yahweh saw, and again, I'm reading for Fox's translation, that great was humankind's evil doing on earth and every form of their heart's planning was only evil all the day. Then Yahweh was sorry that he had made humankind on earth, and it pained his heart. Yahweh said, I will blot out humankind whom I've created from all the face of the soil, and from man to beast to crawling things into the fall of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. These are the begettings of Noah. Noah was a righteous, wholehearted man in his generation. In accord with God did Noah walk. Let me just stop here. I asked a question on the internet if you got my email. How come God didn't kill the fish? This answer, bring your brain to the Bible. Okay, why didn't God kill the fish? Well, first of all, he brought a flood. Fish swim in water. Difficult to kill them with a the flood. God never said he would kill the fish. Only the animals and men, period. That's on the land. So if God says he's not going to kill the fish, he's not going to kill the fish. Don't worry about it. Okay, go on. 
It's that simple. Okay? He didn't kill the fish because he said he wasn't going to. And we don't have to... Fascinating. Okay? Now, verse 5. I want us to take a look at it very carefully again. Verse 5. And Yahweh said that great was humankind's evil doing on earth, that every form of the heart's planning was only evil all the day. The one thing that I want to mention to you right now is the heart in ancient Near Eastern culture. Egypt, Assyria, Canaan, even Greece, and Israel among the Hebrews. The heart is your brain. Now, <laughs> hang on now. Okay, you guys, we're living in the 21st century. We know what the brain is. This is where we think. This is our mental capability. This is our mind, right? They thought it was in the heart. Now, let me read it again. And Yahweh saw that great was humankind's evil doing on earth. I'm bringing it up to the 21st century, ladies and gentlemen. And every form of their minds planning. You see? That's what they're saying from the ancient Near Eastern culture. The mind, the brain's planning, was only evil all the day. Now think about this. The brain's planning. I'm going to go back to the uh, JPS Torah commentary. And I want to uh, note something in here. Let's see, where am I at? Page 47. Try to mark these pages so we don't have to go looking for them all the time. Okay, here it is. In Hebrew, I want to give you the word because it says that every form of the heart's planning or the, or the mind's planning, it doesn't say planning, it says yetzer. Okay? And yetzer in Hebrew, and I'll give you the Strong's number so that you may want to study it further. And remember, don't stop at Strong's Concordance. Go deeper than that. Find a dictionary. It's H3336. Yetzer basically means um, a frame, a purpose, a product. The product of the mind. The frame of the mind. How the mind is framed. Um, it can be, again, the conceptual meaning, the picture is purposely doing something. Purposely. Now let me use a different word. Intentionally. It's on purpose, intentionally, that one is doing something. Let me read here the JPS Torah commentary. And in their translation of verse 5, they have, The Lord saw how great was man's wickedness on earth, and how every plan devised by his mind... I love that. They use mind, not heart. They're trying to help you understand what that means. Was nothing but evil all the time. And here's some commentary on that statement. Literally, every product of the thoughts of his heart. Now, that's what it says in Hebrew. Every product, yetzer, okay, of the thoughts of his heart. But we know it's mind. In biblical psychology, mental phenomena fail, fall within the sphere of the heart, which is the organ of thought, understanding, volition, not a feeling. So there's a difference. We have to understand that. In later Hebrew, yetzer, the thing devised, the product, is the term for the innate impulses or drives in human beings that dispose them to good or evil. Okay, this is later on in Hebrew. So all of you have a yetzer tov. You have 
a inclination to do good. On top of that, you have Yetzirah. You have the inclination to do evil. Now you may disagree with me, which means if you do not have an inclination, Yetzirah, okay, in Hebrew, that means you haven't sinned. Those of you that have not sinned may now leave the room. There's silence here on the microphone. Uh, there's nobody leaving the room. So we're a room full of sinners. Thank you. So you have a Yetzirah. So we're now finished with Lesson 17. And we're really focusing on some very interesting concepts from the Bible. We're talking about intentional sin and unintentional sin. Oh, I tell you that for me, it's very interesting to see that God gave us a choice. He gave the creature, us, a choice. He gave us the free will to make a choice. And right from the beginning, Adam and Eve, all the way here, right now until Genesis chapter 6, what God is saying through Moses, that all of us have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Wait a minute. You say, wait, that's a New Testament lesson. Right. And what is God saying here? All of us, all mankind has sinned. Sin on purpose. And so what we're going to be dealing with in Lesson 18 is what is the purpose of the flood? Now, I, I've gotten into many discussions with people. Was there a flood? I, I really believe that there was. Did it happen? How did it happen? There's an interesting debate among many people that I know and myself. Was it worldwide or was it localized? In other words, was it just a flood just in the Turkey area? And for me, you guys, we Christians seem to focus in on the wrong thing. The issue here is God says that all of us have an inclination to sin continually. And then in the New Testament, we have that statement that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God because all of us are sinners. So I find this fascinating that Paul, in Romans 3.23, definitely says that indeed all of us have fallen short of the glory of God because all of us are sinners. All have sinned. This is, you guys, this is nothing more than a repeat of the Torah. In Romans 3.23, we're connecting, Paul is connecting. Genesis 6, something big is going on here. Our debate should not be whether the flood happened or not. Oh, it did. But the issue is, what's the purpose of the flood? What's the message? message comes down to the cross. Lesson 18, we'll see this. So until then, Shalom.